I do feel it's a bit like question time, isn't it? You know, the exultant audience response here suggests that in this part of the audience, Claire went down extremely well. <laughs> and over here, I saw some skeptics, and I was sitting here wondering what on earth was all this about? Um, I have to start by saying, Claire, I disagree with some of what you say, I agree with some of it, and some of it I think we do need to trawl over and understand the evidence for what you have said. I'm not here to rebut this because I haven't seen this before. This, I, did, I did bring along a little vignette about dates. 1947, when this place opened, I went to primary school for the first time internationally, the first to be educated entirely through the medium of Welsh. I learned English as a foreign language, and I'm still struggling um, many years later. 1947, too, was when a parliamentary answer was given the question, how many students are there? And the minister said, 20,273. Wrong minister. There were 77,000. They clearly couldn't count in 1947. I think they were referring to people funded by the government. Everybody else didn't exactly count. I was going to talk about students and their experience, but Claire's, in a sense, beaten me to this. But I have to say, I think maybe this is where we differ. I've spent 45 years exposed to students in six universities. And I must say, I didn't recognize some of the things I was told just now about the student experience. It is true things have changed. Now, I want to talk about some things that have changed and things perhaps which haven't changed and perhaps which need to change. But let me start by simply saying this. I think I would agree with Claire on one fundamental issue, although I think probably for the wrong reason. I think the problem with universities is that there is no alternative. I worry not about the 43% going to university in their experience, the 57% who don't. And one of my biggest concerns is we have been obsessed by how we actually develop our sector and done so very successfully, as Graham pointed out, an extremely good sector, which is, by the way, slipping down the international league tables. We now used to have the third best graduating rates in the world. We're now 15th this year, and we're going down, if that is something that counts for you. But the problem is that there never has been a viable alternative, which gives you the access to the same life opportunities. I was fascinated with two examples you gave, Claire, if I may just address you on this. Westminster and the University of the Arts. You didn't mention the University of Oxford, which started off as a vocational educational institution, teaching people the church and the law. They actually were dealing with instrumentalism of its kind. The aristocracy didn't go there. It was the middle classes who went. And actually, they were there to train people. Scholarship came much much, much later down the track. And there is an issue about what are universities for. And I think the confusion, and there is a confusion, is the assumption that in order to raise your higher level skills, it is through universities that you actually achieve those. Whereas actually in other parts of the world, notably in Germany and elsewhere, there are different ways by which you can reach higher level aspiration. I spent much of the last three years, apart from promoting the now late lamented diplomas, 1419, which was trying to get away from this notion that the academic stream is the only thing that really matters and the vocational is for somebody who fails and ought to be a plumber. I think what we also were trying to promote was the apprenticeship program. And the problem there is it was always a cul-de-sac. It wasn't really a, a gateway for real development. So what I'm interested in is not the universities as they are, but universities as part of a wider spectrum of opportunity to give people a chance to move on. Let me say something about that very briefly. First of all, we are, I think, focused a lot on numbers. And we do say about 43% of young people going to university. 
But ask yourself, who goes to university? I would lay you that if you walked into the wards around Egham and Virginia Water and the rest, it's probably 60 to 70% who go to university. And I'll take you to Nottingham North, where the current figure is 8% going to university. The fact is, it is very differential. In some communities, very many do go. What we've done is extended opportunity, but extended it to a wider range of the middle classes, by and large. There has been an improvement in working class participation, but it's very, very slow to develop. Now, the question is, does that matter? Is that a right or a privilege? Well, the problem is life chances are so much tied up with this. Now, you may blame employers for this, you may blame us for making degrees so important, but the reality is that, that without some of these, this apparatus, you will not progress as easily as others. Unless, of course, you're a self-starter, you're an entrepreneur, Alan Sugar, whatever. Generally speaking, there is a correlation. And that is why universities are sought by middle-class parents, because that is the gateway. Just as, I have to say, I make a confession. I went to a public school. Now, for a Welsh person to admit that in public is really quite disturbing. What is more, my parents were Labour politicians. My goodness, what happened there? They were new Labour ahead of their time. Um, <laughs> but um, I won a scholarship because I was an only child and my parents were politicians, so I went to a public school. I tell you this much. If you say that in the modern university, people actually are forced into degree success in order to make sure that clients are happy, well, I'll tell you about the Public Schools Appointments Bureau, which made absolutely sure that however low your achievement level, you were going to get a job at the end of the day, because nobody wanted to admit that all those fees have been paid and the result was unemployment. So it's not actually something which is limited to one part of the sector. It is widespread. And I think we do have to ask ourselves about the utility of all of these things. Now, I do regret... And by the way, I'm not scripting this now. You can see my script has disappeared completely. Um, absolutely. Um, I could turn some overheads, but you know, but you'd had some brilliant ones there, so there you are. Um, I think we, I do regret the fact that in this process, we are beginning to differentiate, not only between institutions, and I have to tell you, the differential resources available institutions are intimately linked to their league table positions. Now, I could discuss that with you afterwards. But it is also differentiating with new subjects. And as a humanist and somebody in the history world, I regret very much that, for example, university where my son is working, large in arts university, is losing not 40%, but 92% of its state funding. It will have to raise fees in order to compensate for all that. I do fear for the subject of history, and I do fear for the humanities, and I do fear for knowledge for its own sake. But the trouble is, that cannot be isolated from the broader requirements of society at large. And I think we could have a profitable debate about where the location of that scholarship is. It is probably inconsistent with mass and massification of education. But if you don't opportunity, give opportunities to people by and large, you will create a society of differential achievement and of differential opportunity. And I am passionate, as a member of the WEA, from many, many years ago. Of course, you'd expect that in South Wales, wouldn't you? Um, but as somebody who, and I know the history of the WA, which is all about trying to create opportunities and making sure, as an alternative to what was not available, was not given through the statutory system, was not provided in every other way. Because with degrees and opportunity came social capital, and that was something missing 
from the equation of so many people. Today, my concern, and I will stop at this, is twofold. I've just finished a period as chairman of the Student Loans Company. I said I was an interim chairman. I wouldn't admit to being the whole chairman. But it was as a result of an inquiry, because many students actually were, were given a very bad time last two years ago. They currently owe 38 billion pounds in loans. Most people are gassed at that figure. That will rise to about 90 billion if fees go up to 9,000 pounds a year. Now, that's why the Treasury is worried, by the way. That's why the Treasury is very unhappy about this. It's about the quantum. But the fact is that all of this has actually fueled parts of society. As statistics, and I try not to be partial about this, as a member, as a vice-chancellor of a university in the million-plus post-92, with a distinguished Russell Group, uh, ex-Russell Group vice-chancellor, but that wasn't a point I'm going to make. Um, one university alone, which is at the bottom of the league table, has more black students than the entire Russell Group. Now, that's an interesting point, because social opportunity has not gone with selectivity. Selectivity has actually cut underneath that. And what's been left is for people who can't be selected and therefore actually go into different kind of institutions. Now, I'm worried about that. I'm also worried about what you tell them about their job prospects. And here's a final point I want to make. We are holding out false promises. We could talk about instrumentalism. We could talk about the role of universities and knowledge. And I'm very pleased to talk about that at any time. I'm much more worried about false promises. I'm much more worried... and. Diana will know this, uh, that I was very unhappy with the tuition fee rises of 2004-05, as you well know, one of those vice chancellors who didn't agree with that. I was very concerned when it was said that if you have a degree, you will earn £400,000 extra in your lifetime. Well, that figure very quickly disappeared when academics examined it. It was actually said by Warwick to be 150000 But that figure's come down since, faster than Royal Bank of Scotland shares. It's now 100000 and it's not quite clear whether 100,000 is everybody. If you're a historian, I suspect actually it's going to be zilch or zero because the opportunities will not be quite the same. But the point is this, with one in five graduates this year unemployed, carrying the potential of a 30-year loan with all the changes in pension funds and opportunities, with all these other things happening, what is the student experience going to be? And this is the problem for universities, I think, in the future. Because people may well look back and say, yes, I was encouraged to come here. I was encouraged because this is going to be the future. But I haven't seen that future. The future isn't exactly what my parents had, first generation, to be worse off than their parents, potentially. That is a real issue. And so I do think we have to rethink. I think we have to ask ourselves about how universities can be maintained. I was going to tell you about a little experiment I did about how available academics actually are to their students today, which is another little worry that I have, because I think when students are paying three times as much, I think they may well ask the question, can I have three times as much tuition? I'm not sure the answer will be the answer they'll get. Um, but there is a real issue for the academic world to ask how it performs in this, but I re really think it has to be contextualized. It's no good saying that universities are going to be a privilege if nobody else shares that privilege in life. And I think what we have to do is provide viable, good quality alternatives so that the whole of our society actually benefits. Because if we don't do that, 
I think the graduates of the future will have a major problem trying to deal with the non-graduates. Thank you very much.